Good morning. Will you guys stand with us?
that we can sing that, the anticipation of the coming king that, that the, the prophets and the people of Old Testament times that had no idea, they knew that the Messiah would come, they didn't know his name, didn't know he'd be called Jesus, now we know him and we can still sing these same words because he's coming back, right, amen, and so as we continue to worship this morning, Let's lift him up as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's enthroned right now, and he's coming for us. Amen? Amen. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night. 
Father, we love you, and we thank you that you have given us this great and precious gift in your son, Jesus, that he came, he came like us in every way, except no sin was found in him, and yet, Lord, he was mocked, and he was beaten, and he was bruised, and he was killed for our sins. It's our transgressions, our iniquities that he paid for, and he rose from the grave so that we, when we confess our sin, Lord, the Bible says that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from our sin and forgive us of all our unrighteousness, that we have Christ, and we have your spirit, and we have your word, and we thank you for that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, and uh, thanks for coming out, getting bundled up, and uh, coming in to uh, the living room this morning. Hopefully, it's cozy, and uh, we are able to be together, and I don't take that for granted this morning. Our first impression team volunteers are going to begin, going to begin passing out the uh, connection card booklets down the rows. This is a, a key way for you to be able to communicate with uh, staff and leadership at Crosspoint. Uh, for instance, ways we can be praying for you, next steps the Lord has for you to take. Um, maybe it's an opportunity for you if you're new to, in a sense, raise your hand, fill out that gray section to help us get to know you and help you stay in the know on what's happening around here. I want to draw your attention to a few different things as you're getting those. Uh, first of all, baptisms are happening on January 1st. And so if that's a next step, if you want to talk more about potentially getting baptized on that day, mark that box and a pastor will be in contact with you. And then also on January 18th, on that Wednesday, we are beginning a new community group targeted at marriages. This group will meet uh, for 14 times uh, throughout the spring from January 18th to the end of April on Wednesday evenings. And so if, that's a, if you're already part of an existing community group, we'd encourage you to stay in that group. If you're not, this is a great opportunity for you to uh, step into a community group and get in, um, be intentional about taking next steps in your marriage. For some of us, maybe some of you, uh, your marriage is struggling and you're fully aware that we need help. And so this might be a great way for you to do that. Some of you, you'd say, well, our marriage is fine. But when you walk down the aisle, you didn't think, I'm looking forward to a fine marriage. I'm looking forward to just a mediocre average marriage. You didn't go down the aisle probably with that hope or dream of yours. And so I'd encourage you to uh, mark that box, mark community groups, put something on there about marriage, and we'll be in contact with you about more details regarding that group. This Saturday is Christmas Eve. And we'd love for you to join us for our service at 4 p.m. this Saturday. We will not be gathering on Sunday for our service, but instead, in a sense, we're going to be scattering into various homes. And so uh, this last Sunday, we started to hand out these jars, uh, and we've got about 34, 33 left over. And so in these jars are an activity for you to do on Christmas morning, as well as three conversation starters uh, to do between here and Christmas if not even after Christmas. We did one last night. It wasn't necessarily Norman Rockwell. We have two teenagers, so it was like, you know, it wasn't, oh, Father, tell us more. It wasn't necessarily that. Um, but it led to some really great conversation um, and some like, come on, really? Um, so if we're just keeping it real. So it, some of you have younger kids, and you're like, this is going to be a really challenge. Well, I just encourage you to step into that and, uh, and don't not do it for the sake of... Um, uh, trying to keep the peace. Okay, so opportunities in there, Christmas morning, as well as three times yesterday, today, and tomorrow are the three conversations or devotionals in there. Christmas morning, what we'd love for you to do, we're not going to gather corporately. We're going to gather corporately on Saturday for Christmas Eve. What I'd love for you to do on Christmas morning is for you in your own, own homes, around your kitchen tables, in your living rooms, to open up the Bible. We've got some opportunities, verses for you to look up. We'd, we'd love for you to pray together. See, it's one thing to gather corporately, and we need preaching. We, we don't want to forsake the assembly. But honestly, we're, you're all passive right now in just listening. What I love for you to be, is, is to be active on Christmas morning, to be sharing, to be praying, to be talking, to be reading Scripture together, scattering around homes. If you're not with cross-pointers that morning, Awesome then do this together with family or friends, whoever you're gathered with that morning. So there's about 30, 35 left back in the back. If those jars run out, there are paper copies of what's in here minus the jar. So if you're late to get to the back and all you get is a paper copy, please take that home. And it's also available online if you're watching at home this morning. 
Today's message is called Anticipating the Coming King. But before we get into Isaiah 11 and that message, I want to share with you something we are, we are anticipating as a church in 2017. We've been at this location since April 2012. God's been so faithful to us as a church, has really worked through the generosity of his people since being out here. We were mobile for six years. Some of you may not know this. We were mobile for six years uh, at the middle school meeting prior to being out here. And God was so faithful. It was such an evidence of his grace that at just the right time, this property, this location uh, became available for us to step into and God provided in that way. In early 2015, again, by God's grace and the generosity of his people, we were able to pay off the remaining debt of this property. And we've been debt-free now for uh, nearly two years. When we moved to this, yes, when we moved to this property, we knew that uh, it wasn't going to be the end. We knew that at some point we'd be expanding the footprint of this building, if you will. We had enough space to make things work and grow as a church, but we also planned all along that at some point we would be adding on. And so in early 2017, we are going to begin gathering input from ministry leaders, ministry teams on what their needs and wants are when it comes to what a phase two building expansion could look like. We're going to start walking by faith toward the vision of expanding the facilities and the abilities of this property and this building. What we envision at this point is a phase two expansion would allow us to do more ministry to, to more people, allow us more space to do that, specifically in the, in the areas of Sun Chasers Hype and community groups and disciple-making efforts in general, if you will. For example, Sun Chasers, their, their classes, uh, first grade through fourth grade, they meet in mobile classrooms in the back. It works, but it also has limitations. And so there's opportunities for us to be able to step into had they, if they had their own space to meet. We'd love to see our hype student ministry have additional space for ministry and outreach efforts. We'd love to have the ability for community groups and disciple-making classes and trainings to happen at the same time that children and students have space to gather in as well. As an elder team, we believe God is calling us to begin walking by faith toward that vision. And the first step will be to get leaders and ministry team, uh, teams together to brainstorm, to dream, to pray about how ministry could grow in its effectiveness and outreach if the Lord were to provide more space and or different space for us. This past summer, we, we wrote what we call the Crosspoint Culture. It's our way of describing life around Crosspoint, the picture of the church that we are and the, the picture of the church that we desire to continue to grow into. One of those sentences is this, as God's people, we are called to walk and live by faith, so we're okay with change, trying something new, and trusting in the God who knows and sees all. That's who we are as a church and who we've been since meeting at a storefront, to meeting mobile in a school, to now meeting at this location. We desire to be a people who walk by faith, not walk in our own wisdom, but rather walk in His faith, seeking His wisdom who he promises to give it to us generously in James 1. We are a church full of doers and get-her-done folks. I think that comes with a church plant. I think that comes with uh, being mobile for six years. I love that about the culture that we have around here. But with that comes the really strong potential for us to try to move ahead in these kind of things in our own strength. Because we're going to get her done and we're going to Get this, we're going to get this accomplished and we get out ahead of the Lord, if you will. And so what I want to remind us of as a church, I want to, what I want to remind our, my own heart of is that as we walk by faith toward a vision of, of a phase two expansion, as we begin that walk, it begins with prayer. Yes, we'll be gathering input from ministry leaders and teams and on the practical side of things, we'll be doing that. But underlying this entire journey must be us as God's people confessing our dependency upon the Lord. Us in a posture of knees bent, hands open, God, we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your discernment. We need your clarity. We need you to provide. We need you to lead. And we need you to give us the supernatural ability to trust in you, to walk by faith and not walk by sight. The very last sentence of our Crosspoint culture says this, in the end, our goal is not to bring Crosspoint glory, but God glory. We're shining His light, expanding His kingdom, and seeking to leave an eternal impact on our community and world. 
that's our heart as a church, including this journey as we begin to explore the idea of a phase two building. We want God to be glorified, not us. We want his kingdom to be advanced, not us, not our kingdom. And we want to leave his mark, not our mark on this community and, and this world. So with that reminder, I just want to pray for us, and I, I want to pray in a sense to initiate us, to start us, that we would be a church in this season moving forward to be a people of prayer, of dependency upon the Lord, not just because of a building, but because that's what God's people are called to do. And so let me pray. Father God, um, it's in the morning, and we lay our request before you, and we wait expectantly. And our request is that you would give us your wisdom. God, we don't want to walk in our own strength, in our own wisdom. We don't want to lean on our own understanding, Lord. We want to lean on you. As a people, we confess that we need you, not just when it comes to some phase two building, but as your people in daily life, we need you. So, Father, I pray that you would give us a supernatural trust in you, a faith in you. Increase our faith in you. Increase our love for you. Increase our love for people around us. Increase our love for those yet to know you as Lord and Savior and to experience you. Experience the forgiveness and the grace and the freedom that is found in you and you alone. I pray that you would be glorified as we move into this new year, as we begin to pursue this as, an, as a possibility, Lord. I pray that you'd be glorified by our actions, by our attitudes as your people. We love you. We trust you. We're grateful for your steadfast faithfulness and love over the 13 plus years of us as a church. God, you've been so exceedingly good to us. And we worship you and we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as your people, we want to trust you we love you, Jesus. Thank you that you first loved us. Thank you for that reminder at Christmas. And may you be glorified not only in this new year, but in this message and as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have a Bible, get to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. We'll be in chapter 11. We're going to jump back in the timeline that we are on right now. We're going to pick, pick Daniel back up on January 1st on that Sunday. Uh, where we've been the last couple weeks, but today we're going to jump backward into Isaiah 11. As a kid, do you remember the anticipation you experienced as you approached Christmas? I would go to bed on Christmas Eve and I would anticipate what would be underneath the tree. My parents would always bring the stuff out after we'd gone to bed. We still do that with our kids. But I would anticipate, is it going to be a 10-speed bike? I know you have like 55 gears on a bike nowadays, but on a 10-speed bike, that thing was awesome, especially if you lived in the country. Or a ColecoVision. Will it be a ColecoVision? I never anticipated the walnuts or the oranges that were in my stockings. Those never brought anticipation. Is there any other families that put oranges in their stockings? Or Remember this as a kid? Do you still do this? Because we have some cuties. I feel like I just need to throw in our kids' stockings just to keep them honest this week. But now as an adult, I still look forward to the season with anticipation. As a parent, I'm already looking forward to what we're going to give our kids on Christmas morning. I would tell you, but they're here. But we're really excited about that. Every Christmas, it's different. I was telling Eli last night, it's different as a parent, this anticipation that you have not to, not to receive, but to give. And to, because you've thought about someone, you've, uh, you've thought about them, and you say, I want to demonstrate my love to you through this and through this gift or through this act of, of a gift. Anticipation is a big part of the Christmas season. And yet, for some of us, we don't look forward to the season with anticipation. We look forward to getting through this season. Because maybe for you, this is your first Christmas without a loved one. Or, or it's a reminder of the dysfunctional family that you are a part of. Or it brings up wounds from the past or highlights some sort of broken or strained relationship. So maybe for you, anticipation is not a big part of this season. Maybe if you're honest, you're struggling with the idea of hope or anticipation. We often move into a new year with hope and expectation and eagerness about what's up ahead. I mean, if, if we look back at 2016, it's been a year of some difficult events 
nationally or worldwide, a very divisive and tension-filled national election, a refugee crisis and pain in the Middle East in so many different ways, terrorist attacks both here and abroad. Maybe for you personally, you've had a difficult season. You've lost a loved one. Your marriage has hit a difficult season. You're in some sort of fiery trial maybe that's lingering. Your child is in rebellion, running from the Lord. Or maybe you're just kind of personally struggling with with a sin or some habit, some addiction that you're trying to get victory over in Christ, but you can't seem to get it. I'm not sure what each of us walk in with this morning. I know it's varied in a room this big whether you're struggling with hope or anticipation or you're eager and excited and, you have, and you're full of hope and anticipation, I believe the words, either way, I believe the words of Isaiah 11 will encourage us this morning. These words are a big part of the Christmas story itself, hope and anticipation, because here in Isaiah 11, we are, it, it was written 700 years before Jesus was, was born. It was written in anticipation of the Messiah who would be born. It was written in the midst of a very difficult and seemingly hopeless situation. Again, we're jumping back in the timeline of the Old Testament right now, but the past few weeks we've been talking about God's people being kidnapped, sent into exile. Now Isaiah 11 comes actually before that exile takes place. And the context of Isaiah 11 is that you've got this neighboring nation, Assyria, who is looming as a major threat to the people of Judah. The Assyrians are arrogant in their own strength and wisdom, and the Lord tells them in chapter 10 that he will chop down the mighty tree of Assyria. He will cut down the proud, the lofty tree will be brought down, he says in verse 33. He compares Assyria to this mighty forest that's going to be cut down with an axe. So you've got this, this picture of a, of a mighty forest, a great forest, but now just stumps. And maybe a a stump is a good description of something in your life right now, something that occurred in 2016 even. And when you think of a picture of a stump, it's a bit hopeless, right? I mean, you look at that thing and you think, that thing's not coming back to life. It's been cut off. But the Lord uses a picture of a stump with Isaiah, and it's actually a picture, picture of hope. Hope in the midst of a seemingly desperate or dead situation like a stump. And so if you've got something in your life that resembles more of a stump than a flourishing tree, then be encouraged that when the Lord sees a stump, He doesn't see hopelessness or see death or see uh, this is going nowhere, lifelessness. He sees hope. In chapter 6, He tells Isaiah that there's a holy seed in this stump, a seed that leads to new life, a seed that will lead to hope, a seed that will lead to this coming king. And so into this picture of a stump, Isaiah 11 opens with verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse was the father of King David, and in 2 Samuel 7, which we looked at this summer, we learned that Jesus would come from the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and says he will build a house and he will raise up an offspring from David and established a kingdom through his offspring. And this kingdom will last forever. It will be an eternal kingdom. This son of David that will one day come will be without sin. His name will be Jesus. The book of Matthew in the New Testament opens up with with this verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And between 2 Samuel 7 and Matthew 1, you have about a thousand years before the son of David is actually born, before light breaks through the darkness, before his voice breaks through the silence of 400 years, 10 centuries before the promised one comes. And in that waiting, the Old Testament prophets continually pointed people to this coming son of David, that he will come, this holy seed in the midst of a stump, Ten centuries, you would look at a stump and go, nothing's happening here. But God is working underneath that stump. Isaiah 11 here falls 300 years after God's covenant with David, 700 years before Jesus would be born. And in all that time, we see that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful, that he does not abandon, that he is a promise-keeping God. 
that he is not a haphazard God, but he is a God who is working out his plans in this world, who foretold of the Messiah to come through a prophet of Isaiah. And when we look at these prophecies, when we see them come to pass in the New Testament, it reminds us of God's faithfulness. One of the things you're going to be looking at on your Christmas celebration on the card that's in that jar is you're going to be looking at a few scriptures in the Old Testament, prophecies that were fulfilled at the Christmas time in the New Testament. And my hope is that as you do that, as you look at Micah and Isaiah in the Old Testament, and then you flip forward to Luke 2, and you do that in a matter of seconds, you see God's faithfulness over 700 years go by. His steadfast, steadfast faithfulness, that he's a promise-keeping God. And so for centuries, the Old Testament people who trusted in the Lord, who loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, waited in anticipation for this Messiah to come. And now we are on this side of things, and now we wait in anticipation for the Messiah to come again, to come as king and judge of this earth. We see the steadfast faithfulness of God, a God who is able to bring beauty from ashes, a stream of living water in the midst of a desert or a wilderness, new life from a stump that appears to be dead. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So Jesus is the son of David, but here in verse 1, it points us to that Jesus will be a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father. Jesse didn't have the reputation that David had. David was the giant killing guy with one stone. He was the great warrior, the incredible leader, the one who God made a covenant with in 2 Samuel 7. But here Jesus is tied back to Jesse, who was not as famous. Why? Well, here's one reason. Because we need to see the humility of Jesus here. Yes, he will come, he will be a king from the line of David but he will also be in the line of a humble father of David whose name was Jesse. Jesus was the son of God, but he was also from the shoot of Jesse. And for those who knew Jesse, you wouldn't have assumed that a king of kings would come from his line. Jesus came from a very unlikely family heritage. If, you're, if you think your family is dysfunctional, Jesus, his family, his heritage, his genealogy puts that to shame. If you read the genealogy of Jesus, you are reminded that God uses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Everyone was assuming Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, would be born with all the trappings and the things that would come with a royal birth. But his birth was humble. It was quiet. In a small town, it was off a beaten path, laid in a feeding trough, alongside the animals, born to this teenage girl who was trusting in God's ways and God's word. Isaiah is anticipating the coming of a king from the line of Jesse, the line of David. And then starting in verse 2, Isaiah starts to give us a description of who Jesus will be. Not only will he come from the line of Jesse, but now Isaiah starts to give us a picture of who this baby will be, who this king will be. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So this shoot of Jesse, this holy seed from an apparently dead stump, isn't just barely alive. He is fully alive and full of the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. We see that prophecy then come to pass in Matthew 3.16. Jesus baptized, and it says this, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Isaiah is prophesying here that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon Jesus. So even though Isaiah is anticipating this unlikely king who will come, this unlikely king will lack nothing. This, this innocent humble baby will lack nothing. He has the Spirit of the Lord and everything he needs to bring the world back to himself, to restore the world back to its original creation, to rescue us from our sin and our rebellion. Be encouraged this morning. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, he wasn't and he isn't lacking in anything. 
He is more than able. He is not deficient or limited in any way. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He was and is and is to come. See, we are limited, but our God is not. And so that's why, as God's people, we are never hopeless. We're never hopeless. We are always hopeful because our God is not limited in any way. He's lacking nothing. And then Isaiah lists some characteristics of the Spirit of the Lord, which describe not only to us the Holy Spirit, but also Jesus himself, the Son of God. He will have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and these are coupled together. Spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And so Jesus will be full of wisdom and understanding, meaning, meaning he will make correct judgments, have deep insights, discern the consequences of actions. He not only understands the things of this world because he created them, but he understands us. He understands our hearts. He is the great high priest who understands the temptations that we face. He is the wisdom of God. He is not just slightly wiser than us, or uh, he is not, doesn't possess wisdom, but he is wisdom. That is his nature. It is his character. Jesus will be full of counsel and might, meaning his counsel leads to the best path of our lives. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. His ways and his words and his wisdom lead to life. The question we have to wrestle with is, are we listening to his word? Are we seeking to receive his wisdom instead of ours? Are we seeking to live by his ways? Isaiah also reminds us that Jesus will be full of might. He'll have power. He'll have authority. He'll be heroic in nature. So not only is this king full of counsel, but then he'll also have the power and might to do what he desires to do and help those who call upon him for help. Knowing that Jesus is full of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, this is why we pray. This is why we pray. This is why we look at a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 and say, I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I don't want to trust in my own ways. I want to acknowledge His ways. I want to acknowledge His understanding, lean on His wisdom. I don't know about you, but I, but I know about me. And here's what I know. I am lacking in wisdom and understanding, counsel, and might. On my own, apart from the Lord, I am not all-wise, all-understanding, all-powerful. But I know who is. And so I worship Him. So I follow His ways. I trust in His ways. This is why I pray to Him as a father all the time and about everything. Because He is, because He possesses all of that. And He is infinite. So we tend to view the Christian life as one where we get by on our own for 90% of things. But then when we get into a really big jam or beyond our ability, whatever that is, whatever threshold that is, that last 10%, then we call upon the Lord. But the picture that Scripture gives is totally different than that. Instead, he says, I want you to depend on me for all things, even your daily bread, right? I want you to acknowledge me in all things and ways, and by doing so, I'll lead you. I'll make your path straight. We are told that his power is made perfect in our what? Our weakness. See, we hate to appear needy as people. We appear to appear needy as humbling, it's pride-busting. Listen, the biblical truth is, is that we are all born needy. You should say this to yourself this week. I am needy, all right? Because you've got a friend or this family member, you're like, I can't wait to see Aunt so-and-so because she's needy, right? But we're all born needy. As you approach 2017, are you aware that you need the Lord's wisdom, counsel, understanding, and power in your life for all things, not just some? Not just some. I I'm fully aware of this. I'm fully aware that I need His counsel, His might, His understanding, his wisdom as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a pastor. And so this is why he invites us to pray, because he lacks nothing. And why he's given us his living, act, living and active words so that we can seek his wisdom in it. 
The Spirit of the Lord rests fully upon him. Isaiah also tells us that Jesus will be full of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord meaning he will have an intimate relationship with the Father. He will not just know about the Father, but he will know the Father because he and the Father are one. And then the coming king will also fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord meaning that he will uh, revere and be in awe of the Father. He will yield his will to the Father's will. And then the beginning of verse 3 tells us that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. See, when we hear the, the phrase fear of the Lord, we think obligation or begrudging obedience or something like that. But here are, we are reminded that, that he will delight in living in the, the awe or the reverence of the Lord. It will be his joy to worship the Father. It will be his joy to honor and submit to God the Father. It will be his joy to stand in awe of the Father. It will be his joy to delight in the truth that the Father is just and holy and powerful and wise and loving and gracious and merciful, compassionate. Jesus will find joy in living for the Father and doing the Father's will. When you consider your walk with the Lord right now, would you say you are delighting in living in fear of Him? Living in awe of Him? Living in reverence of Him? Are you delighting in the truth that if you're in Christ, that He knows you and calls you His own? Son, daughter. When you obey the Lord and His Word, are you delighting in that obedience? So we can delight in, we can take obedience, we can take joy in that obedience because we know His ways lead to life. His ways lead to His glory and our good and our joy. In my past, when I've tried to do stuff on my own, when I've tried to, uh, when I fall to this temptation, or I just try to do stuff in my own strength or wisdom, those times are not delightful. They are not joy-producing. Sin may, be, may bring momentary pleasure, but in the end, it kills our joy. It robs us of our joy. John 14, 9, Jesus told Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. Because while the Father, the Son, the Spirit are all distinct from one another, they are all each fully God. This is the Trinity. So the Spirit of the Lord rests fully on the Son. Isaiah then goes on in verse 3, describing to us Jesus, the Son of God, that He will judge by what He sees with His eyes or decide. He will not judge by what He sees with His eyes or decide by what He hears with His ears. But with righteousness, He will judge the needy. With justice, He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, with the breath of His lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be His belt and faithfulness, the sash around His waist. Jesus will judge by the heart, not by outward appearances, which is the truth we are reminded of in the story of David, being the son of Jesse, being called out, anointed as the future king, this young shepherd boy who had brothers with better resumes. See, God looks at the heart. Some of you are so stained or broken from your life of sin, from, from whatever outside or inside has impacted you, and you're just assuming that you need to clean yourself up to make yourself pleasing to God because you feel so stained by what has happened in your life. But the good news of Jesus is not that you would clean yourself up, that you would pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The good news of Jesus is that the perfect Son of God who was stain-free, sinless in every way, born of a virgin, not inheriting that that uh, sin DNA that we all have. That He died for us. And so that through faith and repentance, through surrender, through humbling ourselves, then from the inside out, He would make us clean. Not through external ways, but through faith. Listen to these words here in Isaiah. Jesus doesn't judge by sight or hearing. He is righteous in His judgment. Meaning our sin will still be judged. He's righteous in that. He's not, well, it's okay. He's righteous in that. The penalty of our sin is still death, but the gift of God is eternal life found in Jesus Christ. Eternal life is found in Him because He took the penalty of our sin, even though it wasn't His to bear. Have you received Him as 
Lord and Savior? Have you received this eternal life found in Christ alone? Verse 5 again, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So this anticipated king spoken of in Isaiah will be radically different than the earthly kings around us. He will be righteous and faithful. He can be trusted. He will never abandon. He will never forsake. Then in verses 6 through 9, Isaiah gives us a picture of what the reign of this anticipated king will look like. And in all these words in Isaiah here, we have him both describing Jesus coming as as the baby, his first coming, as well as Jesus coming as the second coming, his coming as uh, king and judge of this earth. So that you have the near and far at the same time when it comes to this prophecy. Someone has compared it to, you look at the mountain range, you come up on the Rocky Mountains when you're uh, a couple hours away, and it just looks like one massive mountain range. But then you get close to it and you're like, well, this peak is right here. But to get to that next one, it would take another day's drive or another day's hike. So you see the near and far, but from a distance, they're all kind of woven together. And here in Isaiah 11, they're woven together. You see the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. He's describing here in these next verses what it's going to be like when the Lord restores his creation back to its original design. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor nor destroy on all my holy mountain, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Verse 9 is a good summary verse there. In the new heaven, the new earth, when these former things have passed away, when God has made all things new, there will be no harm, no more destruction. One day for those who have trusted in Christ for their salvation, we will enter this eternal life and God will restore his creation back to its original design. Everything will be in harmony with one another, like four-part tight harmony. Shalom is the Hebrew word, meaning harmony in every way. No death, no sin, no hurt, no pain, no loss. Jesus will be king. Peace will reign. The curse of sin will be removed. The Bible starts with a perfect picture of Genesis 1 and 2, God's design for his people. And then it ends with God restoring the world back to himself, restoring back to what he always intended in Revelation 21 and 22. And the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. And we look at our world and we long for that, don't we? We long for that. When some of us look at certain stumps in our lives, we long for that to come. We anticipate that. We celebrate his first coming at Christmas, and yet we also anticipate that one day, verses 6 through 9 will describe the world that that we live in as his people the day when crying turns to laughter, when chaos turns to harmony, when sadness turns to joy, when death is no more, only abundant, restful, peaceful joy, eternal joy, life. Isaiah then writes, verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse in Romans 15, 12 and says the root of Jesse will be a, um, a hope for the Gentiles. That's you and me. Jesus will stand as a banner for the people. The ESV says as a signal to the nations. I love that because a signal draws attention. It says don't miss this. Do you know this root of Jesse? Spoken of here in Isaiah 11. Do you know him personally? Not just know about him. That's Christmas, I know about. No, but do you know him in relationship? Are you seeing his signal, his banner that says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden or heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls, and I will give you abundant life. I will give you joy. The worship team wants to come back up. For the Christ follower here, we are people living between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so while we wait, 
while we anticipate his second coming, while we eagerly await the world that is described in verses 6 through 9, we are reminded that we are on mission. We are his ambassadors. We are his kingdom workers. And our prayer is that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We are his hands and feet. And so we seek to bring justice and bring peace and love and righteousness and faithfulness and all the things that that the Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus. All the things that the Spirit is. Now, as God's people, the Spirit of the Lord dwells with us. We are his temple. We are his, his, his dwelling. And so now... We, we want to reflect Christ because we have that same Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So we want to be people who are kingdom workers and who bring peace and justice and love and grace and truth and righteousness in all that we do. Our lives are to bear witness to Jesus, the signal for the nations. God's heart is for people. We see this at Christmas, right? From the neighborhoods to the nations, God's heart for people. He came near. At Christmas, we are reminded that he didn't remain far off, but he came near. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, as John said in verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. For the person here who doesn't know Christ as Savior and Lord, or maybe you've just been so hurt in the past, and you've just dismissed him, I pray you'd surrender and allow his pure light to break through your darkness. And for the Christ follower, I pray that we would delight in reflecting his light this Christmas at workplaces, at at schools, in the family gatherings that we have upcoming. Father, I pray that you would spur us on toward love and good deeds. Father, thank you that you sent your son to be the light of the world. And as your people, we want to reflect that light. We want to be your kingdom workers. We want to be your hands and feet. I pray for the person who is struggling with hope this morning. I pray that in Christ that they would find hope. I pray that you would supernaturally give them a hope that comes from you and you alone. I pray that the stumps in our lives, Lord, that we would see you at work in that. We would trust you in the waiting. I pray that you'd bring comfort to those who grieve the loss of a loved one this morning. I pray that you would spur us on as your people, that we would be a hopeful people, a people who would anticipate your second coming, and in the meantime, that we would be a faithful people. Teach us to love you. Teach us to delight in you, delight in living in awe of you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and worship.
take our offering as we finish our last song. Aren't you glad that we can sing that he has come? He has come to Israel, to us. Let's praise him for that. you on Christmas Eve at four o'clock. I encourage you to invite somebody to join you that morning. If you don't have a jar for your household, make sure you grab one before you leave. Merry Christmas. Have a great week.